Okay, good morning, everybody. Uh, please turn your Bible or your Bible app to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. Uh, before Nick reads the passage, let's just pray for the Spirit's help. Uh, Father God, we ask that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word this morning. Lord, fill us with your Spirit. Make your word clear. Protect us from any error that I speak. Lord, make much of Jesus this morning. Make your name great here today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Ecclesiastes, uh, chapter 6, verse 10, through chapter 7, verse 14. Let us hear the word of the Lord. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A, a good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom, like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Blessed be the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Nick. So on Friday in late 2017, Frank Bruni, an author for the New York Times, went to bed perfectly healthy. He woke up the next morning 
the vision in his right eye was blurry, it wouldn't clear. He had suffered a small stroke that permanently damaged the optic eye in his, the optic nerve in his right eye. And he writes in his memoir, The Beauty of Dusk, I went to bed believing that I was more or less in control of my life. I woke up to the realization of how ludicrous that was. What Bruni experienced is something the preacher in Ecclesiastes calls adversity. And I mean, haven't we heard about that this morning in our pastoral prayer? We, we have friends in our church. We have neighbors in our country who have experienced adversity this morning, this weekend. Can you identify with that loss of control that Bruni describes, that, that sense of something coming into your life that you have no control over? Um, how do you respond when that happens? How are you experiencing that even this morning? It's easier to describe what adversity feels like than what it is. I'm not going to give you a dictionary definition, but if you're outside walking or, or running, you've experienced this feeling of the air being calm and peaceful, maybe until you turn around and start walking the other direction, and then suddenly there's a breeze in your face. The exercise gets a bit harder. The wind that was at your back is now blowing against you. Uh, last year, I was flying off an aircraft carrier as part of my job. I experienced this. We walked onto the flight deck to catch our plane, and there was 30 miles an hour wind going down the deck, jet engines blowing everywhere. I was terrified. I was really afraid I was going to be blown over the side of the ship, and that has happened to people. That's how adversity can feel, can't it? Sometimes, sometimes it's a gentle breeze in your face. It's just a bit of effort extra in your daily life, but sometimes it's a powerful gale that can terrify you. Okay, whatever you're experiencing this morning, God wants to teach us how to respond to the winds that are blowing in our lives through this passage. Uh, and before we jump into the text, I, I want to say, I know this is not theoretical for anybody here. I look around this room and I can put names and faces to adversity, present and past. For me, and maybe for some of you, God's word today is a helpful correction. It can be a needed instruction. But for most of you out here, just let this be an encouragement. Let this be an exhortation, a reminder of what you so beautifully and powerfully live out day after day. If you're here today and you're not someone who follows Jesus, I, I thank you for being here. I really appreciate that you're here. And this message is for you too. These are human questions we're asking. These aren't just quest Christian questions, and I'll bet you can relate to them uh, at least a little bit. All right, so let's get into the word together, and we'll call this first section the preacher's questions. The preacher's questions at the end of chapter 6. Look at verse 12 with me, first of all. Chapter 6, verse 12. Who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? The preacher asked two universal questions. Who really knows what's good for us? And who can tell us what will happen after we're gone? We think we're in control of our lives, but are we really? And we think we know what's best for us, but do we? I mean, I pretty much always think I know what's good for me. My first response to anything from a minor inconvenience to a major adversity is, I don't need this right now, as though somehow I know what I need. Can you relate to that? All right, my default response is to remind God that I've got a pretty good idea of what I need in my life, and this is not it. Um, I might even spend time arguing with God over my circumstances. All right, look at verses 10 and 11. It is known what man is, the preacher says, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. He's talking about God there. The more words, 
the more vanity, the more mist we're grasping after, he says. And what's the advantage to man? The book of Job records the conversation of a man who experienced deep adversity. He argued for days with his friends and with God, trying to figure out what was going on. He never got an answer. And it's likely that we won't either. Joshua reminded us a few weeks ago, we are wisest to let our words be few when we are wondering as well as when we're worshiping. Thankfully, though, God doesn't just leave us asking these human questions. The preacher is going to give us some answers in the rest of our passage. So let's look at the next section, the preacher's contrasts. At the beginning of chapter 7, the preacher's contrasts. He's going to tell us, let me tell you about some things that are good for mankind, but they're not what you might think. Uh, in the first six verses, we're going to call this death's lessons. I think if you've got a fill-in-the-blank sheet, there's a little, one, little blank there. Death's lessons. The preacher begins with four better-than comparisons that are kind of surprising. Let's look at the beginning of chapter 7 again. A good name is better than precious ointment in the day of death than the day of birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. What a downer. None of those sound good or better. I'd much rather go see a baby being born than experience a death. I'd much rather go to a party than a funeral. I'd much rather laugh than grieve. Maybe the preacher knows something we don't. This passage shows us two ways of handling adversity, two ways of dealing with those winds that are blowing in our lives. One way, one way is to laugh our way through life, devote ourselves to parties, good times. That's verse four. The heart of the fool is in the house of mirth. We can try to respond to adversity by ignoring it, by drowning the pain with endless pleasure. I mean, what's, what's your temptation when life gets hard? Maybe you open a bottle of wine. Maybe you find a party to go to. Maybe you open your favorite streaming service, binge some TV. For me, it's a book. I can get lost in a good book and ignore my trouble for a while. And now books aren't bad, neither is wine or Netflix necessarily, but if I try to use them to escape the adversity in my life, the preacher says I'm being a fool. This also isn't to say we shouldn't feast, that we shouldn't experience times of genuine laughter and celebration with our friends and family. Those are good things. God gives us those things richly to enjoy. But the book of Ecclesiastes continually reminds us that our destination on this earth isn't happiness and laughter. Our natural lives end in the grave. So if that's the foolish response, what's the wise response to adversity? Look back down with me at verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sounds like considering our mortality is the better thing for us to meditate on. In his book, Living Life Backwards, David Gibson writes, Death dons a preacher's robe to teach us that life is finite, and we must use it well. So we pay attention when we experience adversity. When the wind picks up in our face, there are lessons to be learned. Hear what I'm not saying, though. Okay, I'm not saying that when life gets hard, we should work to figure out what the lesson God is trying to teach us so that we can get back to normal. That's not what Scripture teaches. Yes, God will teach us. He will shape us through suffering, 
but suffering doesn't go on until we do our part, until we figure out what we're supposed to do to make it stop. God does not play games like that. So what good does come from thinking more about the true end of our lives and ignoring our troubles? Uh, there's a few things I think this passage teaches us. One, adversity helps us understand what really matters in life. Going to the house of mourning reminds us that we need an eternal mindset, not an earthly mindset. And that's what verse 2 means when it says the living will lay it to heart. Here's David Gibson again. He writes, the sermon's death preaches, if we choose our sermons wisely, can tell us more about the way we love and the way we live than we ever realize is actually going on while we live and love. You know, a few weeks ago, I had the privilege of going to the memorial service for Sung's father. And many of us literally went to the house of mourning as we gathered to remember Mr. Co. We saw the slideshow of his life. Hearing his children's memories of him were both sweet and sobering. And that being at that service was a wisdom-giving privilege. Why? Because it reminded me, as it reminded everyone there, that there will be a memorial service for us someday too. How do I want to be remembered? What do I want to happen to me when I die? Okay, I want to be with Jesus. I want my family to remember that I love them, but I don't think about it every day. Do you? It's only when we go to the house of mourning, when we think about the end of our lives, that we're reminded of, what's ma of what matters most in life. So friends, let's take to heart the wisdom that we gain in the house of mourning. Verse 3 tells us another good gladness. This one's a bit hard to understand. Let's, let's read it together. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face, a heart is made glad. I'm not going to pretend I understand everything this verse is teaching, and even the books and commentaries I've read don't really explain it. But here's at least one thing I think this verse is saying. I think this verse tells us that the path to true gladness is through honest sorrow. The path to true gladness is through honest sorrow. Let's think about that for a second. When I'm struggling or I'm suffering, what's my instinct? What, is, what does culture teach me to do? Put on a brave face. Buck up. Smile your way through the pain, right? Pretend everything's okay. Can you relate to that? All right. Now let me ask you, does that really make you glad? Or does it just isolate you in your pain? What happens when my friends, though, says, how are you doing? And I respond, it's been a really hard day. I'm really sad. My friend, and many of you here have done this for me, is able to comfort me. I can't think about this without thinking of the beginning of Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, where he says that God the Father comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. Okay, when do we need comfort? We need comfort when we're in pain. It wasn't though Paul was loving being shipwrecked or beaten to death, but he recognized that God met him with comfort in his adversity, and that enabled him to comfort others. So I think that's at least part of what's going on here in verse 3. When we're honest about our sadness, when we're transparent about our sorrow, then we open ourselves up to receive comfort from God and comfort from our sisters and brothers in our church community. We give ourselves a path back to gladness from the sorrow that we're experiencing. Okay, the preacher takes us to the house of mourning one more time in this passage. Read verse 4 with me again. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. 
While verse two talks about going to the house of mourning, this verse sounds like the wise person camps out there for a little while, like they're oriented more towards grief than towards empty celebration. Why might that be? What wisdom do we gain by living with adversity? We've already seen how being mindful of our mortality helps us live our own lives wisely, but could it be that living with adversity helps us to be wise towards others as well? In his book, Frank Bruni describes how experiencing his own adversity gave him new eyes to see the struggles of others. He asks, what would it be like if we all had a sandwich board that displayed the hardships out of our lives, what we're going through right now? He writes, some of these sandwich boards, talking about his friends, people he was coming to know, were legible to me because I was now reading the world differently. And some were presented to me by people who knew what my own sandwich board said. The preacher is helping us here to see that having our hearts shaped by time, by living in the house of mourning, will open our eyes to the needs of those around us. It will help us see their true struggles. How is this making you feel this morning? Do you feel like you've spent plenty of time in the house of mourning? Like you're tired of it? Or maybe you're convicted that you haven't spent quite enough time there. I, I think I'm kind of with that second group. That's okay. Even that conviction is better, or so we're told in verses 5 and 6. L look down at that with me again. Verses 5 and 6, it's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Let's not be discouraged or upset if this passage is reminding us to rethink our priorities or calling us, or calling us to be patient in our trials. Because a wise man, and ultimately the perfectly wise God, is speaking to us through these words. Okay, so here's what's good, says the preacher. Here's wisdom. Consider the reality of death and let that grow your understanding of yourself and your understanding of others. That said, though, wisdom isn't everything. In the next section, the preacher will tell us that it's not always easy to live wisely. Verses 7 through 12 are going to show us wisdom's obstacles. Wisdom's obstacles, and let's see this together in verses, we're going to start in verses 11 and 12, kind of at the end of the passage there. Wisdom, Ecclesiastes says, is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Overall, wisdom is good. There's that word again, good. Who knows what is good for mankind? Well, wisdom is, apparently, it can protect us. It can preserve our life. It helps us align ourselves with the natural grain of the world as God made it to be. But wisdom's not everything. In this fallen world, we're going to encounter challenges even when we try to live with as much wisdom as we can. The preacher here tells us about four things that can get us off track as we try to live with wisdom. He talks about oppression and bribery in verse 7, impatience in verse 8, anger in verse 9, and nostalgia in verse 10. So we don't have time this morning to dig into each one of these, but let's talk about a couple of them. First, let me ask you, how do you respond when things don't go your way? I'm asking you because I'd rather ask you than me, because I know what my answer is. Look back down at verses 8 and 9. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry. For anger lodges in the heart of fools. 
how angry I can get when things don't go my way. Can you relate to that? And I'm not talking about something really serious. I'm just talking about like heavy traffic or a schedule change. What does that say about me? Well, that says, according to the preacher, it says I'm a fool. It says my heart is full of pride and impatience. And I will say I'm really grateful. This is an area God has been working in my heart over the past few years to be patient in spirit, to be slower to respond in anger over unexpected breezes or strong gales that suddenly appear in my life. Maybe this is an area the Holy Spirit is speaking to you here today too. Be, be alert to his guidance and conviction about that impatience, that anger. See what verse 10 says. Let's, let's move on now. Verse 10 says, Say not, why were the former days better than these? It's not from wisdom that you ask this. Now, if that's not a timely reminder for us in 2022, I do not know what is. Nostalgia for the good old days is about as American as it gets. The idea that some back, somewhere in time there was a golden time that we need to get back to, that's woven through our stories and our songs in this country. This isn't new, though. Just think about the people of Israel. Freed from slavery to a regime that was actively trying to wipe them out through infanticide and forced labor, at the first sign of trouble in the desert, they start fondly reminiscing about the great food they were eating back in Egypt. <laughs> Adversity does that to us, too. We think everything would be okay if I could just get back there, if I could just get back to the past. This verse tells us that's foolish. That is not coming from a heart of wisdom. Think back to the questions the preacher asked at the beginning. Who knows what is good for man? It's a rhetorical question. He expects the answer, well, we don't. So we can't know that today isn't as good as yesterday. Instead, if we're wise, we'll remember that God knows all ends, not us. And we'll trust his plans. We'll trust his purposes. Okay, so let's bring this to a close and see the preacher's conclusion. Verses 13 and 14 are the preacher's conclusion after he's asked all these questions and made these contrasts. Chapter 7, verse 13, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Here the preacher addresses the questions he began with. Who knows what's good for man and what will come after we are gone? His conclusion for us is pretty simple. He says it twice in these two verses. Did you see it there? Consider, he says. What are we to consider? Well, I think there's two things. We're to consider God's work in verse 13. He makes things crooked. Who can change it? God's in control. And we're to consider God's wisdom. Verse 14, God sends adversity as well as prosperity. He knows what is good for us. Okay, so how do we feel when we read those verses? I think the original readers of this book would have read them as a reminder of God's sovereignty. This is the people of Israel around the time of, of exile, maybe later. They would have remembered God's absolute power over them and over all creation. And, and that helps us from the standpoint of control, doesn't it? I can accept adversity more patiently if I know that God is in control. They certainly would have been aware of God's covenant love for them as a people. But I think that there's something here that we can only fill in 
though, on this side of the cross and the empty tomb. I don't think God wants us to come away from this passage feeling passive, feeling pessimistic or fatalistic about our lives. You know, kind of like Eeyore in the Winnie the Pooh stories, cloud in every sky, disappointment around every corner. All right, if that's our takeaway from Ecclesiastes, to respond to adversity with fatalism, we're not getting the message here. Let's remember the question we began with. How do we handle adversity? I think the answer is, and I think this is the top of the, the handout page as well. Here's, the an- here's what I think the answer is. We respond with trust, trust in our sovereign and loving Father, with joy at the way that God is shaping us, and with hope in his wise plans for us. Let me say that again. We respond to adversity with trust in our loving Father, with joy in God's work in our lives, and with hope in his plans for us. Paul describes this in his letter to the church in Rome. And if you would, please turn to the book of Romans with me. I want you to see this with me. Romans chapter 5, it's in the New Testament, just after the Gospels and the, the book of Acts. We're going to start in verse 3, Romans 5, 3. We rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings, Paul says, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. Character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. I want to pause there for a minute with you. How do we know that our hope isn't in vain? You can put up with a lot of adversity if you have hope. You can put up with almost anything if you have hope. But it has to be the right kind of hope. Um, A TV show, an Apple TV show, Ted Lasso, this, this American coach is talking to his English soccer team before a big match. He says, I've been hearing this phrase y'all got over here that I ain't too crazy about. It's the hope that kills you. Y'all know that? I disagree, you know. I think it's the lack of hope that comes and gets you. Lack of hope can be crippling, but so can hoping in the wrong thing. The Stockdale Paradox illustrates the dangers of misplaced hope. See, as American prisoners of war in Vietnam, six, seven years they were in prison, hope was critical to their survival, but what they hoped in was super important. Because the ones who set unrealistic goals, the ones who set unrealistic timelines, they're hoping like, Christmas I'll get out, Easter will get out. Often they didn't survive when Easter came and they didn't get out. When their hopes were disappointed year after year, they didn't make it. Okay, so what are we hoping in? How do we know today that we won't be disappointed in the end? As Christians, we're hoping in the defeat of death. We're hoping that everything sad will come untrue one day. If you're not a Christian, this might be something for you to consider. What would you say you're hoping in? What's keeping you going in tough times? Hope that things will get better someday? Maybe hope that you can overcome adversity through hard work or dedication? How's that hope working out for you? How certain is it? Here's why Paul tells us we won't be disappointed in the end. Look back down at Romans chapter 5. Paul writes, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us for while we were still weak at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. 
We can be absolutely certain in our hope because God loves us and because Christ has died for us. That's why. I'll say that again. We can be, you, sisters and brothers, and I can be absolutely certain in our hope that death will be defeated in the end because God loves us and because Christ died for us. I mean, of all the things that don't seem good, I think Jesus' death on the cross is at the very top of that list. His followers certainly didn't think so. Their hopes were crushed the day he died on that Roman cross for about three days. And then they learned that his death actually was good, just like our contrasts earlier in the book of Ecclesiastes. Sisters and brothers, our hope in adversity, our hope in suffering and trial is that Jesus gave his life for us, experienced the ultimate suffering and shame, and he rose from the dead so that we could have unshakable hope in the midst of our own adversity here on earth. If you're not a believer in Jesus today, that same hope can be yours. Just turn away from going your own way. That's called repentance and follow Jesus today. Okay, so let's close by asking our question one more time. How do we handle adversity? We handle it by trusting in our powerful and loving Heavenly Father who works all things together for, say it with me, for good. God knows what is good for us. And as Joshua pointed out yesterday during our conference, not only does he know what's good for us, he desires what's good for us. He wants your good and mine. All right, let's pray. Powerful and loving Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for giving us your word and your spirit today. We praise you that we can trust you to know what is good and to do what is good for us. Father, may we leave here today with fresh hope and fresh joy in you. Amen. Thank you, Dan, so much for serving us in the word. Very helpful. Let me read this verse again that Dan so wonderfully highlighted. Hope does not put us to shame. I'm not sure if you're in the house of mourning, house of feasting. Here's a great takeaway. Hope in Christ, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. We want to celebrate that hope and as it were, seal it into our hearts this morning by taking the Lord's Supper together, the bread and the cup to remind us of a hope we have beyond the house of mourning, a hope in the one who conquered the grave. So the, in a moment here, the servers are gonna come forward to serve us the Lord's Supper. And when you are ready, we invite you to come down the sides and receive the, the bread and then either the juice or wine. And as you do so, reflect on this hope. We, we will one day, sooner or later, be in the house of mourning for ourselves, 
in some fashion for a loved one. We need this hope. As the gales of trials, as Dan put it, hit our faces even this week, we need this hope. And so let the bread and the cup minister to us, even now.